Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Paul Irish. He's a historian of Aboriginal Australia. He's here to talk about his new book, Hidden in Plain View, The Aboriginal People of Coastal Sydney. It's published by New South Publishing in May 2017. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. So, Paul, what is the myth or the the usual story about Aboriginal people in Sydney that your book really argues against? I think it's a myth that is common to most colonial places and, and Indigenous people in those colonial places around the world, which is that, and it's particularly relevant to cities, um, that these are places that push Indigenous people out of the way. And in Sydney, there's a particular version of this, which um, varies you know, from place to place. In Sydney, the idea that's been very prevalent for a long time is that Aboriginal people in Sydney were pushed out of the way by Sydney and by about the 1840s, which is about 50 years after Europeans arrived in Sydney, there wasn't really any uh, local Aboriginal people left and and anyone who was in Sydney, an Aboriginal person in Sydney, was living in a very sort of degraded existence and and was not uh, continuing to practice their culture, um, which, as it turns out, across the world is, is of course, um, you know, completely false. But that's the myth, nonetheless. And so your book tries to present an alternate view uh, and and ask, you know, what did happen to the Aboriginal people of Sydney, especially in the 19th century? And you say that the answer is, you know, as the title says, hidden in plain view. What do you mean by that? Well, I think when we start to look at historical records and the way that people at the time were viewing Aboriginal people and Aboriginality, we find that the records are not Uh, there there are actually records that Aboriginal people continued to live in Sydney. It's just that at the time they were being talked about in a particular way that's that's meant that their existence has been ignored by historians until quite recently. So, for example, for people writing in the middle of the 19th century, the very time when I said before uh, that Aboriginal people were said to have disappeared from Sydney, the the myth of that is that what, what people were really talking about was Aboriginal people who were born prior to the arrival of Europeans who were living in a a very unchanged way, still speaking their language, still practising their culture, they certainly saw what we would regard today as Aboriginal people around them all the time. But these were people who had found a sort of hybrid existence as a means of surviving in, in colonial Sydney. So they were wearing European clothes. They were speaking English as well as their traditional Aboriginal languages they were fishing and they were continuing to fish uh, areas that they knew and they were continuing to fish in ways that were quite traditional. But to Europeans, they saw a fish hook, uh, for example, in Sydney, uh, fish hooks were made out of shell um, and they were quickly swapped for European metal fish hooks. But that isn't uh, a sign that the culture was, was, was um, diminishing. It was an adaptation. So I think a lot of the time the records were 
were seeing people but not recognising them as Aboriginal. In another way, if they saw an Aboriginal person who had a European father, for example, they didn't regard that as being authentically Aboriginal. So when you fast forward 100 years to historians starting to grapple with these issues, they took a lot of those records at face value. They took records that said the last person of the so-and-so tribe, the Sydney tribe or the Botany tribe, had died. They took that as being a literal declaration that there were no Aboriginal people from that background left. But at the time, I think people would have recognised that that wasn't quite true. It's just their definitions of Aboriginality and Aboriginal culture and adaptation were quite different to how we would regard it today. So, I mean, I work with descendants of Aboriginal people from the coastal Sydney area, and they and their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and every generation back to the arrival of Europeans in Sydney have always lived as Aboriginal people and asserted a different identity. And, of course, they don't live today the way that their ancestors did two centuries ago, but they've always been identifying as Aboriginal people. The fact that we haven't recognised that is really the, the, the idea of the book, that these people have literally been hidden in plain view. They haven't, they haven't disappeared. We've just not recognised their connections. So your book is about coastal Sydney, um, kind of the eastern part of New South Wales. Is it, it's interesting to think about what did kind of that region look like, you know, thousands of years ago, and, and what did it look like when Europeans uh, came in the late 1700s? Well, see, this is one of the um, the arguments that I use in the book too, is that Aboriginal people have lived along that coastal strip of, of New South Wales, the eastern part of, of Australia, for many, many thousands of years. And we know uh, my other hat um, professionally is as an archaeologist, so I've been doing a lot of work uh, over a number of years in that field too. And we know through archaeological records that Aboriginal people have lived in Sydney for tens of thousands of years. And in that time, they would have witnessed the birth of many of the areas that they came to live in. So when Europeans arrived in the late 18th century, they saw a land that they assumed was timeless and a people who had been there for not that long. But in fact, areas like Sydney Harbour, which, which many people would have visited today and, uh, and see as this um, fantastic harbour area that it is today, 10,000 years ago, that was a deep river valley, not a harbour, because the sea levels were much lower in the, in the Ice Age. And the argument that I use is that Aboriginal people were no strangers to change. They witnessed the formation of the landscape as, as we know it today, and they lived through those changes, and those changes made them even closer in their bond with, with the Sydney area. But in terms of what it looked like, by the time Europeans arrived in the, in the late 1700s, Sydney Harbour was a, a, you know, a fishing paradise, as was Botany Bay, which is, is about 10 kilometres south of Sydney Harbour. And all along that coastline, you've got harbour, you've got ocean beaches, which themselves have, um, you know, quite substantial resources of fish and shellfish. You've got vast forests, um, sandstone scrub and swamps behind that, which again have a lot of bird life and, and animals, kangaroos, wallabies, possums, a, a lot of food sources and, and materials. And then around these bays and harbours, you've got all kinds of inlets and lagoons that were really fertile areas. So I think um, Aboriginal people were certainly adapted to the resources of the sea along the coastal areas, but they also used the resources of the land. But they they were living in, you know, in very uh, rich areas in terms of, of the plants and animals and other other foods and resources. 
You talk in the book about how Aboriginal Australians responded to new circumstances and the arrival of these Europeans. One kind of key concept is strategic distance. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think uh, what what happened in Sydney, I should just say, is that uh, within a year of the Europeans arriving in Sydney Harbour, there was a devastating smallpox epidemic that swept throughout the harbour and far beyond and, and, you know, killed a lot of Aboriginal people. We we don't know the full impact, but it certainly was horrific and would have um, killed members of every family. So when we talk about what was happen- happening in years or decades afterwards, we always have to remember that what we were looking at anyway was a society that was thrown into complete chaos not just by the arrival of Europeans but by the loss of so many knowledge holders and members of families. So in terms of this adaptation that Aboriginal people made they were a relatively small group of people but what they did was rather than uh, so we have this myth that Aboriginal people or Indigenous people everywhere in, in places like colonial cities became fringe dwellers that's a common term in Australia and and possibly in in the United States as well, this idea of sort of being beggars um, on the fringes of of European civilisation. But that's not really the way that it was happening in Sydney. Aboriginal people were certainly choosing to live on the fringes or or beyond the fringes of of the, the colony, but they were doing so so that they could keep their distance and maintain uh, a life that was in many ways separate. But the strategic part of that distance comes from the way that they didn't they didn't shut themselves off from the colony. They found ways to engage with it economically and socially. So they realised that their fishing skills were a good way to make money and obtain foods and other goods that they they wished to have from Europeans. So they they would live, for example, in fishing settlements that were some distance from the the main port of Sydney but they would have fishing boats that they would go in to Sydney and uh, pick up people to go on fishing tours or uh, they would sell boatloads of fish to the markets in Sydney. But they would do that in, uh, sort of on their own terms as much as they could. And that's that's the, the term that, that strategic distance really tries to capture that idea that, that they had a, a fairly large degree of choice about where they were living throughout the 19th century. You talked about your archaeological work. Uh, you're also a historian. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did to research uh, for this book? I mean, how do we know what life was like uh, for Aboriginal Australians in the 19th century? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I absolutely uh, have stood on the shoulders of many giants who've come before me, a lot of people who've done a lot of research, both um, academic historians, archaeologists, and local historians working in you know particular parts of Sydney, as well as many Aboriginal people who've pieced together parts of their um, Aboriginal family histories. But really, I think what became apparent to me at the start of this was that we needed to look as deeply as we could and pull together records, any kinds of records. I mean, it really was a needle in a haystack exercise for many years, as, as much of historical research often is. But in terms of the Aboriginal story, it's not that the records weren't there, which is, again, a reference to this hidden in plain view. I mean, the records are there. They're sitting in libraries. They're sitting in archives. But you have to carefully sift through and pull out these little fragments and try and assemble them into a picture. So uh, we were looking at everything from uh, newspaper articles, uh, personal correspondence, maps, images, all sorts of sources, and uh, but uh, crucially putting them together in a framework that looked at places and people who were repeatedly mentioned in those records. And once we did that, we started to see particular 
places around coastal Sydney that were repeatedly mentioned and showed us that Aboriginal people were not just randomly using the landscape but were focusing where they lived and where they moved around Sydney in particular ways. And once those patterns started to emerge, we then had a way of trying to explain things like this idea of strategic distance, that there, there was a real reasoning and a deliberate um, response that Aboriginal people were articulating through their actions. Um, and that's that's when this story really started to become evident. You say towards the end of the book that um, we are wrong to think of Sydney's heritage as having two layers, a, a pre-European Aboriginal layer and then a more recent urban European layer. Uh, why is it wrong to think about kind of the city's landscape development in that way? It's it's wrong factually as, re- as well as just it's led us down a path that has led to this situation where this history has remained hidden. So we have told ourselves repeatedly through books and in heritage that we can honour Aboriginal people and focus on their lives, but we just restrict it to the time before the arrival of Europeans. Sydney, for example, is a vast art gallery containing thousands of rock engravings that Aboriginal people made over many thousands of years. Some of them continued into the post-European period, so we have engravings of ships and convicts and things as well, but we tend to focus on Aboriginal people and their lives as being something that happens up to the arrival of Europeans and then European history and European buildings take over. And it's just not that simple, but it's allowed us to kind of write Aboriginal people out of history. So around Sydney, we have a number of buildings that we call historic houses, uh, the estates of early colonial families around Sydney, for example. And what we find is that in many cases, those families had a lot to do with Aboriginal people throughout the 19th century. So these buildings, which are regarded as markers of European history and which by sort of default are said to kind of erase or stamp over the top of Aboriginal history, actually also have Aboriginal histories. So when you go around Sydney now and look at many of these places, they're actually, they're not places of European history alone. They're places of a very shared history, a very integrated and connected history And that's the way, it's a complicating story. It's much easier to say something has a layer of black followed by a layer of white, um, to put it crudely, but that is not the case. Um, It's a much more entangled and complex um, history and heritage than that. Paul, last question before I let you go. Looking forward, what needs to be done in order to, you know, bring these issues and this history out of the hiddenness, you know, in, into plain sight, what, what would you uh, recommend or suggest uh, that people do in order to understand this kind of dual history? Well, what I'm hoping is that the, uh, the book is, is one of a number of um, ways that people might start to recognise that the history is not as, as simple as this sort of black and white kind of history and that there is a lot more um, integration of those histories and a lot more complexity I'd hope that uh, some of these places which have been used to designate sort of colonial history uh, at the expense of Aboriginal history, and there are signs that this is already happening, are beginning to uh, to, to be recognised for their Aboriginal connections. So I think a lot of it to do is to do with education and knowledge because we have to get past these really fundamental concepts like Aboriginal people um didn't survive because they, they weren't really Aboriginal anymore. I mean, that's simply rubbish, but we've told ourselves this story so many times over so many generations that it's really going to take a while for that to, to, to work through that. But I think the, the key thing too is that the Aboriginal people that I work with 
um, in the La Perouse Aboriginal community in Sydney in particular, but uh, many Aboriginal people, as they come to terms with this history as well, they will be very staunch advocates, I think, for uh, greater recognition. They already are and have been for, for many years, many generations. But I think books like this hopefully provide uh, a means of, of taking that conversation to as broad an audience as possible. Certainly starting the conversation. Paul, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Paul Irish. He's a historian of Aboriginal Australia. His new book is Hidden in Plain View, The Aboriginal People of Coastal Sydney. It's published by New South Publishing in May 2017. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>